A P4Y2 tanker is trying to help put out a fire near Estes Park, Colorado when it falls from the sky in a fireball. What caused this aircraft to become a fireball falling from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome to the local disaster party. Some prefaces. There, there's currently a thunderstorm. Yes. So if you hear any thunder boomies, thunder that, boomies. that page, as wonderful as they are, cannot edit out. Deal with it. There hasn't really been a lot. We can't do much bit. about thunder. There, there was are, a little bit for a moment, but it's kind of died down. So. There are also fat, P-H-A-T, raindrops that may eventually become hail. I hope to God it doesn't become hail. I think it's settled down a little. Already. In any case, you may hear the storm. The storm. In all of its glory. Yes. You may also hear Miranda and I stitching. It has been brought to my attention that I should not speak with my cross-stitch needle in my mouth, but listen. <laughs> Sometimes you need a third hand, so thank I, you, Kaylin. I always just worry about you, like, inhaling said needle. How it's fine. You, what? I don't know, but it's in your mouth, and it just worries me. I you just think you're going to... Right? Never know, right? <laughs> it's metal. It's not... And you're holding... Anyway... Whatever. Okay. I think that's a little crazy, but I know that's but... just me. Okay, and then the last pre-note that I have in my lengthy preamble, we messed up. Not really. A little bit. Not really. Sorry, Alan. We don't know how to tell ourselves that something should be a two-parter. So this is unintentionally part two of the aerial firefighting series. Right. <laughs> and it will be eerily similar to last episode. Right. So, that being said, there's a plane that probably had a structure failure due to issues, because, and it's a fire taker. There you go. And Miranda's not the episode. Miranda's part. not going to be happy. Oh, boy. No. But my part's really short! So, do we have any other housekeeping things before uh, we... Doing the normal stuff, checking out, like, the ducks. Yeah. Oh, I still haven't fixed the duck form. <laughs> oh, well. Thank you to people who have updated your patronage recently. Yes, I'm thank not you. gonna call you out because our thing is really bad at telling us on a Tracy. Yes, but yes, I think at the very least Tracy, I know upped. I think some other people renewed their annual. Is Tammy new? Yes, Tammy is new. Thank you, to Tammy. This is hard to keep track of now. Sorry. Uh huh. We get the email. I read the email. If we don't record within the week of getting the email, I forget. She got the newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. Yes. And there's several people who got multiple questions correct. We had, I think, the most answers we've ever had. Yes. This was a relatively easy one. To be one. fair, this one was easy. <laughs> this one was pretty easy. So, but lots of good stuff there. And stories. We haven't gotten a story in a really long time. Yeah, we need those. Yeah. So. Going back to trivia questions, we will release the answers next week. Yes. That'll be a next week. Yes. But yeah. So send us stories because we have no stories. And right. we can't do another story episode without stories. Right. So, we haven't come a, up with a theme in a while. There's been a few. I put themes in the newsletter. Sure. What is the theme, Miranda? I don't remember. But you can also just send us anything. Just look any at the newsletter. Any story you want to tell. I'm Feel a storyteller and I like stories. That being said, we just went to St. Louis the other day and we'll tell that story during the post episode. Yes, which we means will. You should be a patron. Yes. So you can hear all about my heat rash and my sunburn and my miserable <laughs> time in St. Louis. It was a great day trip. It was a great day trip. <laughs> I was absolutely miserable, but it was a great day. But you know what? <laughs> it was actually a good day trip. All right. So what are we covering today, Nicholas? Today we are covering tanker flight one, two, three. 
Thank you to Alan. Thank you, Alan. Again. Once more. Yes. We apologize. Once more. Fair warning, the story is very short and happens very fast. They had a handful of paragraphs that all told the exact same story from a bunch of different witness perspectives, and I'm not going to get into the details of them because it all describes pretty much the exact same thing. And you may, or maybe not, experience deja vu. So it's interesting because you'll note that I said that the story was told by witnesses, and that has, of course, a telling point. This accident occurred on July 18th of 2002. Yep, that is not very long. <laughs> Pretty close to a month after the first one. A month and a day. It was a month and a day after the one we recorded last week. This was A. Are you ready for this? Because this is one even I'm not familiar with, and this is fun. This was a consolidated Volte P4Y-2. The f*** is that? Yep. It has four to engines. Be, it's to be fair, I saw a picture of it because yes. I was looking for the other one to this, do the, the thing this morning, and they're on the same Wikipedia page, and it looks very strange. This was a big quad engine, piston engine. Did it used to be like a bomber? Bomber type aircraft. You want to know how I know? Because the whole front of it is glass. Yes. Where the the, the navigator used to be down there, right? Usually or like the, navigators or gunners yeah. or... The bomb drop tech. Yeah. Things like that. So, yeah, this is all... Yeah, that's... This is... This is... And, yeah. We'll talk about the aircraft a lot more later on. I'm sure you'll talk a lot more about the aircraft later on. <laughs> Turns out that bombers make for great aerial firefighting planes because yes, they already have a bay. The, yeah, the thing to drop all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all they have to do is uh, some small modifications to make they it hold the water. They have the mechanisms. Might as well just... Right. They just have to make it hold water. And not explosives. Right. Put out the fire instead of starting one. Right. This one had the tail number November 7620. Charlie. I don't have names for the crew, but the captain was male. He had 3,658 hours total at the time, of which 1,328 hours were on this aircraft type. The first officer was also male and had 6,689 hours, so about double what the captain had, but only 913 on the type, so about half, not quite half, of what the captain had. So the, the first officer was... More experienced overall, but less often. And they, they didn't, even in the report, they didn't call him the first officer. They actually called him the second pilot. Okay. Kind of different with an aircraft like this because it's not, and this kind of operation. It's just a different thing. It's, it's. Which, to remind folks, is still part 91. Right. This is still part 91. Needless to say, we're talking about a firefighting thing because this is related to last week. So this is an aerial firefighting aircraft. Also known as an air tanker. Yes, an air tanker. Like I said, this happens fast. We don't have a lot of bullet points. We're going to get through this real quick. <laughs> the aircraft was dispatched from the tanker base at the Jeffco Airport. It makes me so happy that that's how it was written in the report, because that's still what it was from at the time. From Colorado? Yes, this really? happened here. All of this happened here. Oh, it happened here? It happened here. Oh. This is a local one. Damn. Okay. I am very innately familiar with the Jeffco Airport. This is where my dad first worked as a mechanic, and this is where he made lots of friends, including the person that I am named after. So, and we still have good friends that work there. And this airport is on the other end of the city, basically, from where we are, but it my, is still a big place. My dad now lives right there, not to completely triangulate him, but mm -hmm. he's under the pattern. So yeah, whenever basically. we go out to the hot tub, it's just like, ooh, planes. Right. This is now called the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport. That's it. I was like, there's a different name for it now. Yes. And I wanted to know, just like how Space Force... Space Port. Used to be... Spaceport, excuse me. Yes. Was front... Front range. Front range. Yep. Yeah. Um, front range airport. So this airport, even though it is now Rocky Mountain Metropolitan, the airport code is BJC for yep. Broomfield Jefferson, Jefferson County. Because that's where it is. And it was always called Jeffco. 
by everybody. And to this day, there's still a lot of people that do call it Jeffco because that's just what it always it's was. It's in Jefferson County. And it I is... I hear it called BJC a lot. Yeah, BJC is, of course, I mean, because that's always been its acronym. So it's just, that's the, that's the one thing that has been continuous throughout its time. It is pretty close to Boulder. It's very close to the mountains in terms of its proximity, which makes it a phenomenal place to base tankers. It is a sizable airport, and it actually has pretty sturdy runway, which can take heavy aircraft. It can take 737s, right? It can take 75s. Wow. And C-130s. And it does, actually, on a pretty regular basis. You'd be surprised. And so that's what makes the stark comparison between this airport and the Centennial Airport, which we've talked about in the past. Centennial is actually busier with corporate traffic and private aircraft and, you know, GA stuff. But Jeffco is still very busy, and it can take the larger aircraft. It's a very comparable in size airport. So, the aircraft was dispatched from the tanker base at Jeffco Airport, along with a small fleet of other tankers and firefighting aircraft, to fight the Big Elk wildfire burning near Lyons. This fire was the reason that my half-aunt decided to move away from Lyons. Yes. Lyons has actually had some really bad luck over the years. So, I actually remember this fire season because I used to go visit her up in Lyons, her house was like off of highway 52 Mm -hmm. like it was it was a hidden driveway but if Mm -hmm. you knew where it was it was a red dirt driveway Mm -hmm. right in lions yep and it came very close to fires i'm sure if you live there you have been through some things my grandmother used to live in the middle of town there it is not a very big town but if you are going from boulder to either rocky mountain national park or estes park the very famous town where this the family hotel is and all those things you will go through lions yep that's it that is the option we there are other ways but it's very hard every time we go to the highlands festival we drive through lions we drive through lions yep most people drive through there famous area and they had a lot of terrible luck over the year between floods and wildfires in lions hardy people before the accident flight the aircraft had flown seven previous air attack missions that same day so this was the eighth for the accident mission the aircraft was loaded with 2,000 gallons of fire retardant and 550 gallons of fuel. The aircraft departed the Jeffco Airport on the accident flight and was over the fire in minutes, because it is quite close, where it was circling above and observed other tankers dropped before setting up for their own drop pass. The aircraft made a descending left turn to set up for the drop pass. The aircraft was in a roughly 15 to 20 degree left bank descending down into the valley whereabouts this fire was. While still in this turn, witnesses on the ground and in other aircraft circling the fire, because there was actually a lot of them, watched as fire suddenly erupted from the left wing route. Simultaneously, the left wing folded upward on the aircraft and separated from the fuselage. The aircraft rolled to the left and fell into the hillside. The aircraft impacted the hill at a 45 degree nose down attitude, causing an explosion and starting a sizable fire which is not something you want when you're fighting a fire. Turns out. Yeah, no, not great. Unfortunately, both crew members perished in the accident, as you can kind of imagine. A witness standing about six miles east of the accident site with a camera and a telephoto lens caught pictures as the aircraft fell in flames. The picture showed the fuselage and the wing falling separately in flames. The aircraft crashed just six miles southeast of Estes Park near US-36, mile marker 8 for those that need some triangulation on where this was. Well, we will probably drive past it on our see. way to the Highlands Festival I think this year. I still have pictures of this pulled up somewhere. I do. Oh, you do? I, I, I will get there. Okay. You do you then. Okay. Well, 
This investigation was performed by the NTSB. I don't know if you saw Paige's message, but they made that. I, uh... Okay, so, hold on. I feel like we could put it on here. Yeah, slight, like, side note is we made that into, like, a text tone. So if anybody wants that, we could put it on Patreon. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) I had no idea this was even a thing. If you so want. Thank you, Paige. If not, that's fine. It was just literally me saying the NTSB and then me and Nick going... Does anyone even use our actual text tone? I don't think so, but you never know. You never know. So if you're really interested in it, we'll add it onto the Patreon or whatever, but you gotta let us know, otherwise it'll just stay in our locked vault forever. Mm -hmm. With the assistance of the FAA, the USDA Forest Service, and the aircraft owner, Hawkins and Powers. Yes, the USDA. That was like the Department of Agriculture got it. Yeah, as it turns out. Yes, we just had USDA steaks for dinner, but also... USDA Forest Service. Anyway. Yeah, that's the one. As Nick had mentioned, a photographer on the ground had managed to capture a series of eight photographs that showed the catastrophic failure, so investigators had a pretty good idea of where they needed to start. Yep, those are the eight. Staring at the same thing right that's now. That's horrifying. Yeah. I mean, last time it was a video. Yes. But I feel like this has more fire This one is far one more did. dramatic looking than even the C-130. Yeah. The C-130 was really bad. Yeah. This one has explosions and flames and smoke and... Well, and you said that there was flame seen before the lane came off? No, it was about the same time. I I can't even stress to you how much this happened. Much like the C-130, how it was kind of just all of a sudden the wings just went up and the airplane fell. It was all the same thing. So the eight photographs, it wasn't a click, 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 click. It was a hold down the button. Click, 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 click. Got it. If that helps you figure out how fast this happened. The wreckage was brought to Greeley. Yes. I feel like that's really far. Yes, but it actually makes sense. There's a company. Does it? Yes, there's a company that's been doing this for years, and they do this for the Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas greater area. Why? And they're called Beagles Aviation. Okay. I like Beagles. They have specialized trailers that go and pick up destroyed aircraft or abandoned aircraft, too. They do it all. But usually any aircraft that ends up in an accident somewhere in Colorado that's in GA or Part 91 that's within their capabilities, they're usually the ones to pick it up because they have the space to then deal with it. They can then, you know, most of the time they'll part out the aircraft or they'll help the NTSB or they'll help dispose of it. The wreckage was returned to the owner in 2002. Right. In October. The wreckage? Oh, I guess the owner's the, what's it's called? Hawkins and Powers. Yeah. Yeah. It was odd that it mentioned that at the end of the report, but I... I don't know why they would want it. I mean, other than to get rid of it. Or parts, if they could find parts from it. Uh, Yeah. They might have had another one or two of these, but it's not really worth it. We'll they talk about actually that had four left. Okay, well, we'll talk about that later on because they shouldn't. <laughs> Investigators found not one, not two, but 12 separate low-stress fatigue cracks. <laughs> what the f***? 12? While examining the lower spar cap and web fractures of the left wing. How long were they? Uh, I actually take a while to get to that point, so let me get there. Okay, were they were they almost connecting? I feel like that. I feel like if they're like just a little bit, and then eventually they go boop, and they go boop, and then it... So yeah. there was one very big crack, and then a lot of individual cracks. Oh, okay. All of the fatigue cracks initiated at or near rivet holes. As we talked about is normal, because... Refer to last episode. I'm yeah. not going through that again. I will read here, though, some technical nitty-gritty. 
Quote, half of the cracks initiated at the countersunk head rivet hole and propagated away from the hole, both upward into the upper flathead rivet hole and downward nearly to the lower flathead rivet hole. Three additional fatigue regions initiated at the upper flathead rivet hole and propagated upward. The final three cracks initiated at the lower flathead rivet hole and propagated downward. The later fatigue regions propagated into the horizontal flanges of the cap members and in doing so turning rearward. The fatigue regions in the horizontal flanges of the cap members and in the spar web above the cap transition from low stress propagation perpendicular to the plane of the sheet to high stress mixed fatigue and overstressed propagation as indicated by the change in fracture orientation to a 45 degree plane through the pieces, end quote. So just to recap, that was a lot of yuck. Some fatigue fracture mechanics here. A fatigue fracture is characterized by a flat, generally smooth fracture surface because the crack grows very slowly over time. An overstress fracture is characterized as being jagged and usually at a 45 degree angle because it actually ends up internally shearing apart even if it's pulled completely axially. What is most common to see with a fatigue failure is having an initial flat surface, the fatigue crack, that ends up growing until reaching the critical crack length, the point at which the intact portion can no longer carry the load, so the rest of the fracture is an overstressed fracture in a jagged 45 degree angle. We've talked about this a couple of yep. times, but... Yeah. Yep. I know there's some new people here, so might as well recap. Yes. Fatigue in a nutshell. And welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. That's us. There are shirts on the merch page. Yep. Go look that up. Investigators found that the wing's lower skin also showed low-stress fatigue in the area under the spar cap that propagated rearward for about an inch. Aft of the spar, it propagated in a manner consistent with high-stress propagation, and the two surfaces being pulled apart and pushed into each other numerous times. So not only are they being constantly pulled apart with every motion, but they're also being pushed back together, so that's not great either. Nope. This crack in the skin was 16 inches obscured by deposits of what they didn't say. And the aft five inches was bright, new, shiny, and clean for a total of a 21-inch fracture. That's... That's fine. Gigantic. Intersecting nine rivets total. Yeah. At three of those... That is freaking huge. At three of those rivets, more small, low-stress fatigue cracks had initiated as well. So they weren't taking care of the airplane. No. Investigators... An old bomber airplane shocker. Yes. Investigators could not understand how no one had seen such a significant web system of cracks. Please tell me it's not under a doubler plate. It is not under a doubler plate. Oh, thank you. That's almost worse. If it's just out in the open. It's not. Okay. Is it inside? Let me, can I get there? I'm trying to figure it out. I'm using my deductive reasoning. Investigators could not understand how no one had seen such a significant web system of cracks. At least until they visited Hawkins and Powers and examined two of their four remaining P4Y2 air tankers. In both cases, the area where the cracking would have been was hidden by the fuselage walls, internal belt frame stiffeners, and portions of the retardant tank systems. So it was hidden under stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not doubler plates. But that's almost worse. Also, I have, I have a, a small uh, story uh, that has to do with our trip about doubler plates. So stay tuned. We'll get there. For yes. the post episode. But, however... Shouldn't we be using more than just visual analysis for crack detection? Yes, last time the issue was they weren't looking for it often enough, but they were using non-destructive inspection techniques, or right. NDI. In today's day and age, we have many different kinds of NDI to look for such things, including penetrative fluorescent dye, ultrasound, and eddy currents, just to name a few. Did they not use these techniques? No. Hawkins and Powers had developed a surface and inspection guide for their P4Y2s that very clearly detailed how extensive their visual inspection was to be. So, no. Even during the right. sea check. Well, that's mildly, uh, severely concerning. 
They interviewed one of the mechanics to see how closely this procedure was followed. He pulled the inspection card for the left wing, read the card, and said he would get a mirror and a flashlight and get up on a scaffold and visually inspect the wing from wingtip to the fuselage and would normally take one to two days. He also reported that if a crack was found, he would investigate further, possibly using a dye penetrate or eddy current so as to determine the extent of the cracking before notifying the director of maintenance and coordinate with their engineering firm. What was this whole procedure even based on? <clears throat> Miranda rate warning. Mm-hmm. Oh God, please don't. The repair manuals for this airplane were based on AN015EN3, Handbook of Instructions for Structural Repair, U.S. Navy Model PB4Y2 Airplane, published by the U.S. Navy July 1st, 1945, with a revision published June 1st of 1948. Do you talk about when this airplane was built? Like 1945? This airplane was delivered in July, on July 29th of 1945. World War II! Like, at the end of World War II. Yeah! Needless to say, they didn't detail out NDI techniques for crack inspection. What? Okay. I, uh, this is, like, the huge issue with using really old war airplanes. Like, why didn't, haven't you updated this as we got more techniques to check for things? Well, and they were completely at liberty to do so. They made their own manual that was approved by the FAA. They could have added... That's the big thing. They decided to go with the original manual, which was made in 1945, because this aircraft is so uncommon. And basically, they were like, we need more bombers for the war. And then the war ended, and they were like, sorry, we don't need those airplanes anymore. And we were like, they were like, well, we built some anyways. (laughs) So the Navy still took them for a handful of years, like this one, and flew them mostly as like sea patrol aircraft. Then they went to the Coast Guard, and then this one ended up in the hands of a firefighting company. So, but here's my problem, right, is that's all fine and dandy, but why are you using a manual from 1948? I also misspoke. I said the FAA approved it. Let me uh, retract So that. They, didn't they did really not really exist. It. So shouldn't the FAA have known how antiquated their techniques were? This was before the FAA. <laughs> this was the CAB. Well, well that, was, it, this, that, that was before the NTSB. Right. But, but I'm talking right now. Shouldn't the FAA have known? About, well, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of deal, right? So the FAA principal maintenance inspector who oversaw Hawkins and Powers reported that the FAA did not look at their air tanker operations since the aircraft were being operated exclusively by the U.S. Forest Service. So in short, it's their problem. Yep. What the f***? <laughs> like, come on. But as it, it tur- goes in the air, it has to be regulated by the FAA. Like, that's how this works. Yes. But as it turns out, the Forest Service did not have qualified inspectors. No, really? <laughs> the people who are there to inspect the forest don't have aircraft inspectors? What? Yeah. To look at manuals? Turns what? out. What? And they didn't have anyone trained to conduct oversight inspections of any air tanker operations. What? At all. What? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. The U.S. Forestry Service doesn't have people to do that? (laughs) They're just supposed to perform as per the 2002 National Air Tanker Service contract, which states that the government has the right to inspect and test all services called for by the contract, but they never took advantage of that right, as so enumerated in their contract. So they can have the FAA. They could. Do it. If they wanted to. Okay. (sighs) So there's no findings. Or recommendations. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause or causes of this accident to be the in-flight failure of the left wing due to fatigue cracking in the left wing's forward spar and wing skin. A factor contributing to the accident was inadequate maintenance procedure to detect fatigue cracking. Okay, 
please tell me, and I know we kind of covered this last week with the other episode, but especially because these were so close together that they were like, wow, we should really take a look at these airplanes and like make yeah. sure that they're safe for people to fly. Yes. Because I feel like you had two. The answer to that is yes. Okay. Structural failures due to fatigue. You're like, hmm. Within a month this, and a day of yeah. each other. In case you needed some insight into how much they actually cared about this. It has its own Wikipedia page listed as the 2002 United States air tanker crashes. Yes, that's the one I linked uh, for, on last week's one. Right. It's listed together for a reason, because it was these two plus a series of other ones prior that were like, they're operating on the like absolute edges of legal in aviation. Mm. Absolute. As we've come to find that most very, companies do. Very fine line, very gray line, gray area <laughs> they operate in. All right. Well, I'm guessing that we'll take a break and then yes. we'll get into that after said break. Well, we will talk about some other things after the break. Yeah, because we like really neatly covered all of that last episode. Right. Yeah. We don't really need to talk too much about those things. So we'll talk about some of the other things that have happened lately. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we're back. We're back. Do you want to go first? I don't care. I'll go first. I talk about current. You talk about future. Yes. I kind of talk about so current. So, discussion? Discussion. I so kinda, I kind of talk about current, too. Since we wrapped up last week so uh, officially in a nice little package, not really realizing it was supposed to be a two-parter, we decided to provide you folks with some additional information on aerial firefighting, since we don't get to talk about it all that much, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. So, the fire retardant itself has advanced over the years. Yes, this is very fascinating. Actually, yeah. It used to be made with borate salts, but that was found to be bad for the soil, sterilizing it so that no plant matter could grow back, which is bad. Yeah. Isn't that what they used to help put out the fire at uh, Chernobyl? Probably. I don't know. Probably. That sounds like a Chernobyl thing. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out it's also toxic to animals. Well, I mean, that entire area was toxic to animals. So yeah, didn't matter. Okay, but more for the point here. The wildlife. Right. Maybe we shouldn't be... Uh, dropping that stuff i don't know over Agreed. rocky mountain National i feel Park. like though like as time progresses like we figure out like cigarettes are bad for you and like you shouldn't be drinking while you're pregnant like that kind of stuff someday we're gonna the, our kids are gonna be like you did what like you were using cell phones your whole lives and you didn't know just how bad that was for you like <laughs> your brain all of you have adhd <laughs> guess what caused it you know, they've actually discovered that you shouldn't be sleeping next to your charging cell phones, and mm -hmm. we all just do it. Yeah. It's really bad for you. Anyway. Anyway. Newer retardants use either Formula One, ammonium sulfate, or ammonium phosphate with adipogite, don't quote me on the pronunciation, clay thickener, or Formula Two, diammonium phosphate with guar gum derivative thickener. Oh, so not the fast Formula One, it, the fast it, Formula Two. It gotta be that thick. Yes. You because it has to smother. Are these not polymers? No. It's, I've read something about them being polymers. Ammonium diphosphate. Okay. There's nothing plastic about that. Okay. You've probably seen news footage of aircraft dropping retardant, and it's what color? Red. 
Guess why? This is because ferric oxide, which is the pretentious way of saying iron rust, yep. is added to the retardant to mark where it's been dropped. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You don't drop it, <laughs> it in though? the same spot. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> makes it really I always obvious. wondered why it was red, and now that makes a lot of sense. They wanted to paint pretty, pretty pictures in the forest. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, small, small tangent, sorry. I, this just triggered a memory in my brain. So along those lines, around 2002... I was up in the mountains with my parents camping. Maybe you shouldn't have been. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I was five. I didn't really have a choice. But there were entire sections of forest just burnt. They weren't on fire. They were burnt. Turns out. Mm -hmm. And I just now realized that that's probably the area we're talking about. It was a really bad fire season. Yeah. It was. Not the worst. Those are more uh, lately. So why does retardant need to be thick, you might ask? How many C's? It has to be able to be to smother stuff. Yeah, actually. It has to be. But it gets a little more fascinating than that, though, because they didn't just think about the pouring on. They thought about the after effect. So if retardant isn't thick, it can run down the mountain mm-hmm. before it even has a chance to do oh, anything. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like water. For yeah. one. So same goes for water. So some water dropping aircraft also have tanks of guar gum derivative thickener that they then add to water after they pick it up for mm-hmm. the same reason. I thought it was really fascinating in that article you sent actually to talk a little bit more about these enhanced firefighting retardants. Oh, I didn't read that article. I just sent it to you. Oh, I know. Please elaborate. I read it and it's fascinating because actually that's where they started talking about the use of polymers because they started thinking about not just dropping it on the flames and such and dropping it along the line, the fire line. They intend for it also. Oh, I get to the technique of it. Do you talk about the evaporation? No. Because that's what I'm getting to. Let me read my last paragraph real quick. So, talking about different tactics of aerial firefighting. Mm -hmm. Water or retardant is not dropped directly on a fire because guess what? Fire's hot. Yep. And it's pretty useless dropped directly on fire, actually. If you just drop it directly on the fire, most of the liquid will evaporate before it ever touches the fire. Right. More often, water or retardant is dropped in front of or around a fire to help ground crews contain it. This is called a fire break or a fire break line. Mm Mm-hmm. That's yeah, not because if it's wet, it won't burn. Exactly. So that's not to say that aerial firefighters can't put out a fire on their own. It has happened, but most often they work in conjunction with ground crews, and this helps save ground crews from being in the path of a fire. I yeah. have been, I have a good friend from college that is a volunteer firefighter up mm-hmm. in Conifer, and he, because he lives up there, mm-hmm. sure. and he, there's been times where he's given us updates where mm-hmm. it's like, Look, guys, I'm right across the road from a fire. And I was like, dear Jesus, please don't die. Dear Jesus. (laughs) Okay, so go on about the evaporative. The purpose for the polymers in this is actually they thought about this as a really fascinating thing. For whether it's dropped directly on the fire or more importantly along the fire line, some of the intention behind this is when it reaches that water, of course, it's going to evaporate with the heat. But they figured, why not make that evaporation also do something? Cool. And so they thought, why not make that basically a vapor barrier that wraps the the oh, heat and just literally like suffocates chucks, the fire. Chokes the fire, yeah. So they, the point behind the polymers is literally like you drop it along the fire line in the expectation that it will reach there and that it's going to basically suffocate the fire. Not just stop it from the water, but literally suffocate it with the vapor. Look at that science. Wow, science Look is Look at amazing. all the science. Crazy. Science. Stuff's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's the end of my info dump. All right, and the beginning of mine. 
I don't con- have continue said info dump. Right. I don't have paragraphs and paragraphs of stuff to talk about, but I will summarize some of the things that I have read about. Miranda is going to put the article Nick is referencing on the website. It's quite uh, interesting. It's definitely targeted sure. about. It's from Colorado, and it's about Colorado's firefighting efforts. Oh, I just realized I didn't put the article you gave me last week in the <laughs> post. <so. laughs> That's yeah, still because right. we like. I know. Do so much stuff. And I get it. Sometimes I forget, but I just reminded myself. Sorry. Um, okay. And the website that I used was the Wikipedia page for aerial firefighting. Which I read that page too. But this was really interesting because they went really in depth about firefighting, particularly in Colorado, and the techniques that they're, they're using now and what's coming in the future. So I will sum it up because I already knew some of these things. It's kind of a long story how I knew this, but a place I used to work at was right across from... Colorado actually has their own, quote-unquote, firefighting equipment and teams, as a lot of states in the West tend to. California. Yes. We have our own. We have our own set of equipment, basically, that is designated for Colorado and for its use. But the company that I used to work for, before I worked for them, modified two of these aircraft, and they are public. This is public domain now, but they're actually mentioned in that article, and they are two PC-12s. They are the oh, bright red PC-12s that are in that article, and I know quite a bit about them because some of the people that I worked with worked on that project. Cool. And it's really fascinating. Is that when you worked from... Yes. Oh. And I used to watch these airplanes all the time because they were based on the hangar across from me. So, like, oh. even though they weren't with us anymore, they had them hangered right across the way, and I'd watch them pull them out, and then they'd go whiz away, and they would go do firefighting things. These were not tankers. These weren't even lead aircraft, necessarily. What they do is really fascinating, and I knew some of this from back then, but they talk about it pretty in-depth in that article. If you really want to know more, read about it. It's fascinating. It'll be on the website. They what? use flare balls. Cool. Yes. When was the article published, by the way? I don't remember. Hold on. It's relatively recent. I tried to find that one was recent, but I can't remember which one I sent you. It was relatively recent because most of this stuff I've either... I should say, the helicopters that they mentioned in the article, the new ones that they got, happened while I was working there. Gotcha. So, I know for a fact that this happened recently. This article was recent. Here, I'll pull it up and give you a date. April of 2021. Cool. See? So, for the safety of firefighting, we've done a handful of things. And to summarize, we've become a little more reliant, actually, on helicopters than on aircraft, although air tankers are still very much needed. Don't get me wrong. And used. But helicopters actually have a pretty... This, I understand why they've switched to helicopters. While they can use older helicopters, they still tend to use a lot newer type because helicopters are a lot newer in history <laughs> than fixed-wing True. aircraft. yes. So it's easier to get them in good condition. These helicopters... There's a couple of reasons that it's better for use. For one, they have a lot better accuracy on dump. A lot better. Yeah, because they can go in linear fashion right. more than just forward. Right, yes. It's going to bother the The six directions of You're going to yell this word. Yeah, later. the six. Degrees of freedom. Degrees of freedom! Thank you! <laughs> Anyways, yes, they have that, which makes them a lot more accurate. And... They're a lot better for dumping directly on fires as well as along the fire line, although tankers can still be better depending on the size of the fire and the speed of travel. They have the advantage of volume. That's the big thing, right? Helicopters actually are a lot faster, though, at bringing fire retardant or, better put, just water, actually, because they can. They, a lot of these helicopters are equipped to just pick and drop from lakes, which they do, and it's a very fast thing to do depending on the fire and the distance from water. So it can actually be a faster way to fight fires and a lot less equipment heavy than having to fly a bunch of tankers all at once. You can fly a couple of helicopters that can do a lot of very quick drops. 
So these PC-12s, their purpose, actually, is both for the tankers and for these helicopters who need to be able to do a pretty strategic drop. And what they can do is identify through smoke, through clouds, through the night, through all of that, they can identify where one tree may be set to blaze from the base because they are using really high fidelity technology. And it's actually incredible what they cram into these little PC-12s. But the flare balls that they use, you, of course, use like infrared. And I, I, I am not a professional in this sense. I don't know everything about these, but I think it's still pretty neat. This is not my area of expertise, not in the way a lot of other things are in aviation. FLIR, by the way, is F-L-I-R. It's a brand of thermal cameras. They do most thermal cameras around the world. Um, you, you, I've seen them used in material science labs. That's oh, why yeah. I used it. You can use them for ghost hunting. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, most contractors use them to, like, find leaks in your house for, you know, your... HVAC yep. system in your windows and everything like that. You can get an attachment. It plugs into your phone and turns your mm -hmm. camera into a thermal camera. Yes. They're really cool. But these we're talking about very sensitive flares, as well as other types of imaging devices that they use. And the crazy thing about these is they can fly over these fires, but target them from pretty high distances and then be able to, because these are Wi-Fi equipped aircraft, immediately send any of these images and this data directly to those on the ground and in the air that are fighting this fire so they have an exact target, an exact idea of what they're fighting. Rather than just dropping a marker or something. Right. This is a very, very, very accurate system. And similarly to these PC-12s, now we're getting into the new age where drones are the thing. So firefighting drones, of course, have made these things a lot safer too. Be it that this is a very dangerous job, it is much easier and better to deploy drones <laughs> out into the fire line to spot and do the analysis and report back as well as be the lead aircraft and do the markers where normally this would be done by a pilot, but you're, there, it's a very dangerous job for a pilot. Right. This was better. You lose a drone. Okay. Expensive, but not the end of the world. Not a person. Right. And this has been a thing that's been developing and is slowly coming to fruition, but they can put all this technology pretty small, jammed into a little drone, and do all the same things. So why not? So this is another useful thing that has been developing and is still a future to come in firefighting. Along with those things, they have a lot of other real-time monitoring and reporting, even from the ground mm -hmm. type techniques that they use so that it's a little bit safer for these aircraft to come in. They make sure that they truly have basically a plan set up that's not just kind of a, for lack of a better term, a wing, wing it, it approach. Yeah, you don't want to, you want to make sure, especially like with huge forest fires like mm -hmm. that, having a plan of like, how are we going right. to get this fire out? Well, and now we've got larger tankers, more modern tankers that are safer, they're inspected better all these things but they're As also they should be right but these we've gone from a firefighting operation that's hey there's a fire let's go just dump as much stuff on it as we possibly can to a very targeted very accurate very thought out very scientific industry and again i am this is not my area of expertise but the things that i read about this stuff this is something that we've invested a lot of money in since 2002 and we have changed very drastically. There are new companies and new organizations set up as well as a lot of the states actually took this on on their own and they have their own. Well, and we've kind of had to with global yeah. warming. Yes, it's a thing. Don't try mm -hmm. to do that to me. Mm -hmm. 
it is very real, and it is why fire seasons are worse every year. Uh-huh. Every year is the worst fire season that we've ever mm-hmm. experienced. Yep. Thankfully, and so in Colorado, we, we've had a couple good years, but, you know. We have really good snowpack this year, but that doesn't mean there won't be a fire. Right. There's always some fire. The Marshall Fire's proof of that. That was in winter. Right. Our, we've... Yes, we still always have a couple of fires, but there was nothing like a couple of years ago where it was really bad. 2021 was really bad. Yes. But with all of these changes to our atmosphere, it's making fires worse, more prolific. Mm -hmm. We have to adapt to it. Right. So, other things that they've brought to the fire line, and they are still actively working on, I'm sure, but things we definitely are probably tired of hearing about at this point, because... But you... Shouldn't be because it's just the way of the future, but AI and augmented reality. Are we going to use chat GPT to fight fires? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think chat GPT has anything to do about fire fighting, but I'm sure they will find ways where AI can be used a lot more in depth for targeting, for predictions, for fires, and for being able to prevent them before they start, as well as make the aerial firefighting efforts a lot safer and a lot more accurate. Augmented reality, of course, is a very big part of that too because it allows where new technology has come about. Augmented reality is a very much a thing in aviation now. If you don't know what a you know synthetic vision is, go look that up. Synthetic vision is the one really big kind of untalked about change that's happened over the last, say, 20 years in aviation that's really changing the game and really changing the face of Flying in instrument conditions and flying and preventing things like sea fit because it makes aircraft incredibly intelligent about their relation to objects, objects around them yeah. and their place within space. And it makes the pilot a lot more aware of what's going on around them, too. And that's a form of augmented reality. There's no reason that you can't develop that even further to avoid things like sea fit and also help in these firefighting conditions where it, it's extremely targeted and accurate. And the aircraft has a very accurate, specific maneuver that it has to do that's doable. This is something that is also, of course, very, very deeply used by military outfits and like the Air Force and Navy and whatnot. Augmented reality is their game. It's how they make super accurate fifth generation fighters that don't hit things and can do maneuvers that don't hit things. Fourth generations and before just simply cannot do. So... That kind of sums it up. That's the new and the coming technology in aerial firefighting. And that is how things have evolved. And this is part two in the final part of this kind of very... Unintentional. Yeah. Slash forgotten. Yes. And this is a very, very, very... This was a, These two together were very important, though, because they really highlighted major issues with the aerial firefighting. And it's not that they don't still use old aircraft. They have come to a point, though, where they're using old aircraft and new all at the same time. But these older aircraft that they're using still aren't like World War II old. They are using generally newer, more modern aircraft for this still, like DC-10s rather than 1945 built PY-4-2s. That being said, this is not a commercial crash. Neither of these were. No. And although we try to keep to commercial, we definitely make exceptions. So if you have any other interesting part 135, part 91, part whatever, send them to us. As long as there is a good size report, which we are getting better about checking. Right. Before we confirm your recommendation, send them to us. Yep. There you go. So there you go. 
That was Tanker 123, right? Yeah, technically. <laughs> also known as November 7620 Charlie. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you found this interesting. I thought it was interesting. I thought right. so too. I can see why we added it and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alan. We appreciate you. It was our bad. That being said, you should be a patron. Alan's a patron. Alan is a patron. You should be like Alan. Be like Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Be Alan. But don't be Alan. Be Alan. If you can't be Alan. Be Alan. Be like Alan. Be like Alan. And become a patron. Yeah. And if you can't, that's okay too. That is okay too. But we do hope you enjoyed it. If you do, there is a thing on Spotify that you can tell us what you thought. Yes. About the episode. Someone did ask us to have Paige do an info dump, but I don't know what info you want us to dump. So, <laughs> please, do you want us to dump info about Paige? Like we uh, we don't know what. So, like, let us know what that means. Please specify. Thank you. But if there's anything specific, or if you have any questions or whatever, that's what that like questions for. It says like, what did you think of this episode, or did you like this episode? And some people answer it and go, yeah, I liked it. I really loved it. But if you have any like actual feedback or critical, you know, information or whatever, or want Paige to info dump something, Paige will info dump something. Don't tempt them. <laughs> they will. So just let us know. Also, you should check out the merch page and yeah. buy all the merch. Yeah. Which we should actually do at some point, too. Also, yes. <laughs> we keep saying we're going to. We're going to get matching pajamas, damn it. Yes. Agreed. We are going to get matching pajamas. Anybody who wants to have matching pajamas with us, it's kind of weird, but go ahead. They're on the website. They're on the website. You should also sign up for Ducks. I will fix the form. I know I've said that. Yes. <laughs> For the past several weeks. could use that. But it will ask you to put your email. That way, if we have an issue sending you stuff. By the way, if you've had issues receiving ducks, like you haven't received them yet and you you ordered them a really long time ago, there was a couple that were sent back to us a while ago. And we can't see the name because UPS did the dumb thing. USPS. No, it was UPS. We sent stuff via via UPS? Oh, maybe it was USPS. It's probably USPS. Uh, Anyways. They sent a sticker that's like, send back to sender, and they put it over the person's name. One of them, I think, needed a custom form. The other one didn't have a complete address. So if that was the case and you haven't received your ducks, please let us know, and we can update it for you. Email us, message us on any of the apps. Yeah. We will fix that. that for you and get you your ducks because we have them. They're in my house right now. There we go. Sitting. They've been sitting for months. Yep. So. Did we have any listener questions we needed to answer? No. I don't think so. Not the last time I checked. Okay. Let me double check. Because we've already answered the, the one from Lottie. So. Cool. The last one was from Lottie. Yeah. So, cool. no, we don't have right. any questions. But if you do have a question, With you can question. also submit that on the website. Excellentro. And if you don't know how to get to the website, it's in the description of this episode. You're welcome. (laughs) Unless you're on Patreon. But if you're on Patreon, I feel like you know how to get to our website. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. 
Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.